you all know how to vote. Those who are in favor will say yes, those who are against will say no. And the abstainers, always they know what to say. We will start it now. Afghanistan, now. You are now listening to Undercurrents. My name is Ken Ogasawara, and I'm part of the communications and community engagement team at Mennonite Central Committee in Ontario. This podcast is an experiment to find a new way to share the stories we are privileged to hear from our program participants, staff, volunteers, and others. Undercurrents is brought to you in part by Kindred Credit Union and the Kindred Charitable Fund, which seeks to inspire peaceful, just, and prosperous communities. This episode is about David and Goliath. Two balls and two strikes on it. Here's the pitch on the way, a swing and a belt! Left field, way back, Blue Jays win it! The Blue Jays are World Series champions! As Joe Carter With the notable exception of the early 90s Toronto Blue Jays, I've never really followed a pro sports team in any meaningful way. Touch them all, Joe! You'll never hit a bigger home run in your life! To this day, the only time I start paying attention is during the playoffs. And in any given sport, in any given series, I decide who I'm cheering for based on one criteria. Who is the underdog? Which franchise hasn't ever won a championship? Which team features a player that was packing groceries last season? A lot of these inspiring storylines center on a core theme of overcoming the odds. And when you think of the ultimate underdog story, there is one that towers above the rest. Defeat Goliath, and I shall not destroy Israel, David, son of Jesse. Goliath! We all know the story of David and Goliath. It's a Bible story that has permeated popular culture around the world and it's an idea that resonates with us. We love to root for the Davids, the small and weak defeating a powerful enemy. But what happens when David becomes Goliath? Imagine, if you will, that you are a farmer in Saskatchewan. Golden fields as far as the eye can see. Imagine one day you wake up and find that 100 acres of your best land ripe with wheat or barley, have been bulldozed by armed forces from Manitoba. Where did Manitoba get an army from, you ask? It was paid for by a very powerful international ally who shall remain unnamed for the purposes of this thought experiment. A day later, a whole bunch of Manitobans show up and plant the Manitoba flag on your land and say, we are building a new town here. Sorry, not sorry. Moreover, imagine that not only are they building permanent houses on your prime farmland, the Manitoba government is building a road from the Manitoba-Saskatchewan border all the way to this little settlement in your field. Miles and miles of more land bulldozed, homes demolished, and crops destroyed to build this road. Now imagine this happening dozens, hundreds of times across Canada. Or imagine you're an office worker maybe working in the burgeoning tech sector here in Waterloo Region in southwestern Ontario where I'm recording this. Global center of talent, growth, innovation, and discovery. Your commute is a 20-minute drive from your small town into the city. 
One day, there is a massive traffic jam, and it turns out there is an armed checkpoint to get into Waterloo. Once again, the Manitoba Armed Forces are the culprits. The next day, more checkpoints. Suddenly you need all kinds of paperwork and permits to get into the town where you have worked and traveled freely all your life. Your 20-minute commute is now a four-hour nightmare, and there's no guarantee that the soldiers will let you in or let you out at the end of the day. Your day now begins at 3 a.m., and you get home, if you're lucky, at 10 p.m. These scenarios seem ridiculous here in Canada. But this, and much more, is what is happening to Palestinians today living under Israeli occupation. How did it come to this? To get to the present day, we need some context from the past. For this mini-history lesson, I am drawing heavily from MCC's A Cry for Home campaign, which advocates for peace and justice in Palestine and Israel. Most of us know something about the story of the Jewish people living in the land called both Palestine and Israel. We know that they suffered from centuries of anti-Semitism in Europe, as well as in Canada, the US, Russia, North Africa, and the Middle East, and elsewhere. This anti-Semitism culminated in the horrifying tragedy of the Holocaust during the Second World War. The defeat of the Nazis and the rising influence of secular Jewish Zionists set the stage for a critical turning point for the future of both Palestinians and Jews. More on Zionism later. Australia, yes. Belgium, yes. In 1947, Britain, who had already promised the Jews a homeland in Palestine back in 1917, announced that it would let the newly established United Nations decide what to do about the future of Palestine. The UN General Assembly passed Resolution 181 to partition Palestine into separate Arab and Jewish states, with Jerusalem as an international city. Violence erupted on both sides. The British withdrew on May 15, 1948, and Israel immediately declared its independence. This was a pivotal moment. For the next year and a half, Israel fought a war with surrounding Arab armies who were supporting the cause of a Palestinian nation. The war caused immense displacement and suffering. Over two years, Zionist militia groups depopulated over 500 Arab villages. Roughly 750,000 refugees were forced to flee to the West Bank, Gaza, Jordan, Lebanon, and Syria. By mid-1949, the new Israeli government had bulldozed many of the now-empty villages or had made them partly or completely uninhabitable. As the war ended, the UN recognized the plight of Palestinian refugees. In December of 1948, it passed Resolution 194. This resolution affirmed the right of Palestinians to live in peace with Israel, to return to their homes and property, or to receive appropriate compensation. The UN has passed similar resolutions no less than 28 times since 1948, but to this day, the State of Israel has not honored this right of return. Today, more than 6 million Palestinian refugees and their descendants are scattered around the world, still waiting for justice, 
while the nearly 4 million more who still live in Gaza, West Bank, and East Jerusalem are being slowly economically, psychologically, and physically oppressed by Israel's occupation. The nicer, more liberal and progressive North American country, as opposed to the... On a crisp November morning, I took a walk with an unlikely pair. Two young activists from very different sides of this divide that have united to advocate for peace. They were visiting Canada to go on a cross-country speaking tour organized by MCC. They have both experienced firsthand the systemic and physical violence that has become the status quo in Palestine and Israel. So yeah, there's a construction of narrative um, that it is important to say, like if you construct a narrative right, reality feeds into it, right? If we are raised to believe that everyone always tries to kill us, and you know, I grew up in Jerusalem, second intifada, buses blowing up in the street, people are trying to kill us. <laughs> And it feeds into a narrative that's already ready for that, right? That already says, yes, everyone has always tried to do this. This is part of it. Now it happens to be Palestinians. Here's a solution. Join the military. We'll be fine. This is Sahar Vardi. She is an Israeli Jew who has already served three prison sentences for refusing to participate in mandatory military service when she turned 18. She has been actively protesting Israeli occupation since she was a teenager. Right? There's a complete normalization of violence that happens so fast. It doesn't, it takes a few weeks to, to make another policy feel normal. 14, 15, 16 year old kids have gone through three wars already. That generation is a generation that has nothing to lose. And that's what we're seeing in the protests on, on the wall. The protests on the wall, she is referring to, has been what is called the Great March of Return, which began on March 30th, 2018, and have been continuing since, where thousands of Palestinians are protesting against the Israeli occupation and for their right to return to their land. Here's Sahar again speaking about Palestinian protesters. Right, every week there are people being killed, and again, that was normalized. Like, at first, 11 people, the first day, grew into 13. We were like, oh my God, this is crazy. Last week, seven people were killed. It wasn't even a headline, nobody cares. According to the UN, in 2018 alone, a total of 295 Palestinians were killed, and over 29,000 were injured by Israeli forces the majority of those occurring during the Great March of Return. 57 of the Palestinian fatalities and about 7,000 of the injuries were under 18 years of age. I had permission to go to Tel Aviv to the beach. We took some fruits and vegetables, went as a family. Um, we're on the beach, we realized we forgot to bring knives. Okay. You know? We're going across the checkpoint. You don't carry a knife as a Palestinian. Walking with Sahar is Tarek al-Zugbi, a Christian Palestinian who was raised and currently works in Bethlehem as the project and youth coordinator of WEM, the Palestinian Conflict Transformation Center. So we're at the beach, and one of the internationals who was visiting with our family says, starts walking around to the different groups there saying, do you have a knife, do you have a knife, do you have a knife? And then my whole family jumped and began verbally shouting, at this person to ask them to stop because we equated a Palestinian having a knife near an Israeli with death. With imprisonment, with conviction, with association, one of the stigmas that our children, prisoners, are faced with is parents of their friends don't want them hanging out with their friends anymore. Tarek's casual mention of children prisoners deserves an explanation. He's still eating his crisps that his mum gave him. 
Palestinian children are routinely rounded up by Israeli soldiers, detained and mistreated in military prisons and tried in military courts. This is such a widespread problem that there is an ongoing international advocacy campaign literally called No Way to Treat a Child. Israel has the dubious distinction of being the only country in the world that systematically prosecutes children in military courts, between 500 and 700 each year. An astonishing 99% of cases against Palestinians result in a conviction, compared to only 8% of Israeli settlers, who, by the way, are processed through a civil court, not a military one. Ill treatment in the Israeli military detention system remains, quote, widespread, systematic, and institutionalized throughout the process, according to a UN Children's Fund report. Here's Tarek again talking about the effect these detentions have had on the lives of ordinary Palestinians. One of the tactics that is used is they provide you with this paper that oftentimes has Hebrew on it, a language. As a Palestinian from the West Bank, you're oftentimes, or at all, not proficient in. You don't understand it, and you're asked to sign. And it could say something like, I, Tariq, am guilty of X, Y, and Z, and I did it with the help of Sahar, A, B, C. And so then I sign, regardless of what happens to me, now they have proof for four other people that they can bring into investigation, into interrogation. And so if they see that I'm hanging out with Sahar all the time, her name is more likely to be on there. Sometimes they're people you know, sometimes you're not related to them at all. But there's that fear of association. It's a quick pushback within society. We don't even need it from the Israeli occupation or the Palestinian Authority. Just from each other out of fear. This film is an introduction to the Geneva Conventions of 1949. All the major countries of the world and the communist nations have signed these conventions and ratified them. The Geneva Conventions were established after World War II to ensure humanitarian standards were being met in times of armed conflict. The fourth Geneva Convention sets requirements for occupying powers, including protecting the right to due process, preservation of natural resources, protection of children, religious convictions, and social norms. It also prohibits an occupying power from inflicting collective punishment imposing physical suffering, and forcibly transferring or deporting the protected population, as well as settling its own civilians in occupied territory. These people, many of whom were completely unarmed, were shot in the back. On literally every single one of these counts, Israel is in blatant violation. Israel must respect the right to peaceful protest. Countless times. For over 52 years. The excessive use of force against unarmed civilians. Today, in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, the situation for Palestinians is even more dire, as Israel's occupation and militarization actively sabotaged Palestinian pandemic planning efforts. In March, Palestinians involved in disinfecting public spaces and distributing aid packages in the old city of Jerusalem were arrested. In early April, the Israeli army arrested the Palestinian Authority's Jerusalem Affairs Minister, Fadi Hidmi as he tried to assist Palestinians in Jerusalem with the COVID-19 pandemic. On April 15th, despite 40 confirmed cases in the East Jerusalem Palestinian neighborhood of Silwan, the Israeli army raided their coronavirus testing clinic and arrested its organizers. 
So why hasn't Israel been held accountable in any meaningful way? How is it that the settlements and military presence have not lessened, but actually increased over the years? Part of the reason starts here at home in Canada and the United States. It's called Christian Zionism. Yes, I'm going to stand with Israel. I'm going to bless the people of the Bible. I'm going to bless God's chosen people. Will those of you in this audience who support the state of Israel stand to your feet and give a shout of support? Simply put, Zionism is a movement to establish and protect a Jewish homeland. Today, that means supporting Israel's claim to the land at the expense of Palestinians who have been living there for centuries. Zionism actually started as a secular movement, but religion has also been used to justify Israel's ongoing occupation. And as this Vice News clip explains, you don't have to be Jewish to be a Zionist. There are close to 70 million evangelicals in America versus less than 14 million Jews worldwide. And given that roughly 80% of these Christians support Israel, that makes American Christians the largest pro-Israeli voting bloc in the world, about four times the size of the Jewish community on earth. But why do so many Christians support Israel? For a succinct answer, I'll quote for a moment from Sonia Weaver's excellent book, What is Palestine Israel? Answers to Common Questions. Weaver writes, and I quote, For some Christians, support of Zionism serves as a form of repentance for Western Christianity's shameful history of anti-Judaism. For other Christians, support of Zionism is motivated by the belief that the creation of the State of Israel is an essential step on the way to Jesus' second coming. End quote. Ironically, the latter group of Christians, called dispensationalists, have a distinctly anti-Jewish bias. According to dispensationalism, the second coming of Christ will result in eternal damnation for most Jewish people. This powerful influence of Christian Zionism in the US, and to a lesser extent, Canada, has been a significant part of why Israel has never been held to account in any meaningful way, despite over 28 motions in the UN condemning Israel's human rights and international law violations against Palestinians. In fact, according to the pro-Israel website Jewish Virtual Library, since 1972, the U.S. alone has vetoed 44 motions in the U.N. that have been critical of Israel. Earlier this year, President Trump's peace plan for the Middle East heavily favored Israel by legalizing Israeli settlements in the West Bank and East Jerusalem and allowing annexation of parts of the West Bank, while Jerusalem would remain the, quote, undivided capital of Israel, among other proposals. In addition to strong support in the UN, Israel is also on the receiving end of billions of US foreign military aid dollars. According to a 2019 Congressional Research Service report, and I quote, Israel is the largest cumulative recipient of US foreign assistance since World War II. To date, the United States has provided Israel $142.3 billion in bilateral assistance and missile defense funding. Almost all U.S. bilateral aid to Israel is in the form of military assistance. End quote. This makes Israel, though tiny, one of the most well-armed nations on earth. The fervor with which many of these Christian Zionists support Israel does not leave much room to consider the horrifying consequences for Palestinians. But some, when given the opportunity to see the other side of the wall, have come away with new eyes. This is David Chow, 
a pastor in BC and a director on the MCC Canada board. I grew up with a very conservative, and I would dare say a fundamentalist understanding of eschatology, end times. And so for me, seeing the nation state of Israel be constituted post-World War II seemed like a miracle to me. However, when we forget about the people who have also lived in that region, and with the media uh, informing us of who Palestinians are, at least the way they're portrayed, you get a caricature, a stereotype in your mind. Uh, but this trip, I would say, blew the doors off of that. I got to stay with uh, a family near Bethlehem and got to meet fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who gasp, spoke Arabic, and were Palestinian. And this is where my worldview clashed with stereotypes that were living in my head and with the reality in front of me. It was as if I had scales that were falling off my eyes uh, for the first time. Here I am eating, talking, and living now with brothers and sisters in Christ who were Arabic. All the stereotypes in the newspapers show Palestinians with um, a grenade or a stone in their hand. They're portrayed as terrorists. Of course, it's meant to dehumanize and to belittle. And, and here I am sitting in a, a beautiful family's wonderful home being loved, and I'm a stranger. But why do they love me? Because their, their culture demands that they welcome me. And second, I am a brother in Christ. But they would do this for any stranger. David brings up a tragic contradiction within unconditional Christian support of Israel, which is that it contributes directly to the suffering of fellow Christians, Palestinian Christians. It broke my heart uh, to know that that was my underlying presuppositions, my stereotypes. And when I was confronted about that at nighttime, I, I was in tears. I was on my knees saying, God, forgive me, I am a sinner. Um, I still believe in the nation of Israel. But does that include the Palestinian church? I think it does. For the Lord seeth not as men seeth, one pure in heart. Maybe David and Goliath isn't the best analogy for this story. It's an inherently combative dynamic. One must defeat the other. But what if, instead of drawing a line in the sand and facing each other in a battle to the death, David and Goliath instead chose to be neighbors, to build homes together, to share the land and the water? This is in fact the wish of many Palestinians and Israeli Jews today, who are weary of the fear and the violence. But they recognize, like David and Goliath would have found out had they tried this stunt, that the enemy is not the individual on the other side of the wall. It is a systemic implementation of a policy of fear that makes peaceful coexistence impossible. In fact, Sahar takes exception to this idea of mere coexistence. There's a really good uh, phrasing of it, of uh, some Palestinian activists who said that we don't want coexistence, we want co-resistance. Mm. Right? We don't want to exist in this status quo. <laughs> but if we're going to resist it together, awesome. 
And then you can also build something new, build, I mean, kind of imagine what does it look like after. At MCC, we believe that God's sovereignty and desire for justice around the world means that the land of Palestine and Israel should be a place where Israelis and Palestinians, Jews, Muslims, and Christians live together in peace. To that end, MCC continues working in partnership with both Palestinian and Israeli peace groups who have joined together as Sahar and Tariq have to co-resist, to struggle against military occupation and against injustice. If you've made it this far, some of you may be saying, but what about Israel's take on this? There are always two sides to a story. This is true. But the purpose of this episode is to bring to light Palestinian stories of oppression and dispossession, which are often downplayed or ignored in mainstream media. We also rarely hear voices of Jewish Israelis like Sahar, who oppose the Israeli occupation and the human rights violations that accompany it. So it is important to acknowledge that this episode does not provide a so-called balanced story, which assumes that both sides are comparable in power and in influence. As we've heard, the reality of Palestine and Israel is anything but balanced. This brief overview is also not a comprehensive summary of all the dynamics and factors at play in this long and protracted conflict. For a much richer resource, please go to mccanada.ca and search for A Cry for Home. You will find many first-hand accounts from Palestinians who have suffered under Israeli occupation, as well as both Palestinians and Israeli Jews who show extraordinary strength and faith in standing up to injustice and pursuing a vision in which they can all live together in peace. If you have any questions or comments about this episode, please write to us at podcast.mcco.ca. I'd like to thank my colleagues at MCC Canada, Megan Mast and Emily Lowen, who produced the interview with Pastor David Chow, as well as all of the powerful stories found in A Cry for Home. Thanks also to my research assistant, Garrison Osterhoff, who transcribed interviews, fact-checked articles, and dug up lots of great content for me. Our theme song and other original music is by the one and only Brian McMillan. A huge thank you to Kindred Credit Union and the grant we received from the Kindred Charitable Fund for helping to bring these stories to life. The fund is one of the many ways Kindred Credit Union invests hundreds of thousands of dollars each year in communities across Ontario, inspiring peaceful, just, and prosperous initiatives that range from affordable housing to food security to refugee and newcomer supports. Finally, I would like to thank you for listening to Undercurrents. Please subscribe and like on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. I'm Kanagasawara. Have a great rest of your day.